ATL Showdown. I'm Emma, your tour guide for Atlanta's mayoral election. So today on our episode, we'll be talking about Atlanta's west side neighborhoods. And what I mean by that is English Avenue, Vine City, Washington Park, Ashview Heights, and the University Center. There's a few more that fall under this category like Westlake, Collier Heights, Hunter Hills, you could maybe include Cascade, um, Adamsville, and the West End, but we'll primarily be focused on the neighborhoods like Vine City, English Avenue, and Washington Park. So before we really get started today, I need to tell you a little disclaimer. I have lived and worked in Atlanta's West Side. So during two summers in college, I lived the first summer in Washington Park, in the second summer in Ashview Heights and worked at a nonprofit in Vine City. So this experience shaped a lot of my thoughts, feelings, and attitudes around these neighborhoods on the west side. So with that, we'll jump right in. While there are many Atlantans who don't know much about these west side neighborhoods or haven't been there themselves, there's actually a lot of history that comes from these neighborhoods. As we know, Atlanta is one of the capitals of the civil rights movement. And it's in these neighborhoods where a lot of progress and change happened. In the Atlanta University Center, we have Morehouse College, Clark University, which is now Spelman College, and Morris Brown. These are some of the best HBCUs in the country and some of the nation's oldest and really most prestigious. It was also in the late 19th century that Georgia started passing lots of legislation to really disenfranchise the Blacks. Georgia passed a poll tax in 1877, and I'd say that legislators really did their best to push black citizens out of the community and as far away as possible. But even still, African Americans in Atlanta developed their own businesses, their institutions and churches, and really grew into this strong, thriving, and educated middle class. And a lot of that happened in these West Side neighborhoods again. In the neighborhoods of Washington Park and Ashview Heights, we have Washington Park, which is like a park, actually, um, and that was the first park open to African Americans. So during segregation, this was a place that has six and a half acres and includes a swimming pool, a dance hall, pavilions, and tennis courts. And still to this day, it is a beautiful, wonderful park that I've spent many hours in um, really enjoying not only the facilities of the park, but also a wonderful natatorium that's there as well. And um, in Ashview Heights, there's Washington High School, which is the first public high school for blacks in the state of Georgia and in the Atlanta public school system, and that opened in 1924. So along with these facilities, Again, um, at the HBCUs, we see that students there and faculty as well were really instrumental in the civil rights movement. So they did a lot of organizing and were influential in leadership roles during the civil rights movement. On October 19th in 1960, um, there was a sit-in at several of the all-white lunch counters in Atlanta's department stores, and this led to the arrest of Martin Luther King and several other students. So this brings up Martin Luther King. He's obviously a very influential leader in the civil rights movement, um, and he is a man who was born in Atlanta um, and lived in Atlanta on and off throughout his life. And the house that Martin Luther King was living in 
at the time that he was assassinated is actually in Vine City on Sunset Street. So it's right down the street from the nonprofit that I worked at during my summers here in Atlanta. So there is so much history and culture here in these neighborhoods. And that is, I mean, these few examples that I've given are just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more rich history that these neighborhoods hold. And this is really important to remember when we start to talk about what's going on in the West Side right now and some of these changes that seem to be happening and what the next mayor should should and needs to do about it. So what is going on on the West Side of Atlanta right now? So these days, the West Side of Atlanta is a place where it is a majority of black people living there. There is pretty low income, average income level there, and there's a lot of blight. You see more abandoned houses, abandoned buildings, unkept sidewalks, broken sidewalks, and just a lot of blight in that area of town. And then finally, this is an area with a pretty high crime rate. Okay, so why do we need to talk about this now? Well, first of all, I think that this is always something that we should talk about, but there are two really big changes that are happening in, this, in these neighborhoods right now. So first of all, we have the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which just opened. So um, these neighborhoods are mostly on the west side of Northside Drive, and the Mercedes-Benz Stadium is on the east side of Northside Drive, just right on the side of it. So this stadium bookends one end of these neighborhoods, while we have the Beltline, which is just popping up on the west side, which which is bookending really the other end of these few neighborhoods. And there are more neighborhoods that are affected by both of these new developments, but I have lived and worked in the neighborhoods that are right in between these two, and that's what I'm more familiar with. So that's a little bit more of what we're gonna talk about today. So with the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, I think, first of all, we have to laugh a little bit so we don't cry about the irony of um, a Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which just looms over our neighborhoods on the west side with this huge logo of Mercedes-Benz, you know, again, kind of showing residents, here's something that you can't attain. It just, I sometimes I look at it and it feels like this really looming picture of something that just won't be affordable for you. And then on the other side, we have the Beltline, which Vincent Fort has called the Beltline an engine of gentrification. And I'm not sure that I would go as far as that, but I do think that the Atlanta Beltline is definitely an engine for development and I think that the problem is when that development leads to displacement. So this, I'm going to say, is probably one of the biggest issues in Atlanta on the west side right now. So in these neighborhoods, it's like 95 or 92% of the people living here are renters. So there are most certainly some people who have lived here, but most of the homeowners actually are kind of more generational. So it was my grandma owned this house and now I live in this house. But for the most part, people in these neighborhoods are renters, over 90% of the people living here. So this is a big problem when we have the Beltline and the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which both bring development. 
So then this development can increase the cost of living, which then pushes out people who have lived in this neighborhood for a while. Even though they've been renting, they've lived here for a while. Maybe I'm just being sensitive because I love this neighborhood, but I think that this is a problem specifically in this neighborhood because of all of the history that we have. I mean, nobody should be displaced anywhere, but there is this rich, deep history of African Americans living and thriving in these neighborhoods. Not only are we lacking infrastructure on the west side, or really appropriate infrastructure on the west side, but the west side neighborhoods are kind of any kind of desert you can think of. I mean, they're a food desert, a fitness desert, a health desert, a mental health desert, and so on. So in these historic neighborhoods, Walmart is really the only option for fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, there are a few, there's at least one health clinic that I know of, but I think that's about it in that neighborhood. There is just the natatorium and then and then the nonprofit that I worked at is a gym. And so that's our only option for fitness in the West Side. And then really the West Side is also lacking access to mental health facilities. So there's a lot that can be done to improve the West Side, which is no secret and no surprise. But the question is, will it be done in a way that won't displace our residents? So what I would like to see is these neighborhoods becoming revitalized, having new life. I'd love to see sidewalks being repaired. I'd love to see abandoned houses being you know, used better. But I'd love to see this all being done without pushing out the renters who are there right now. How will this happen? I'm not sure. I'm not running for mayor, but this is the problem that someone needs to figure out. And later in the podcast, we'll get into what people are saying and what, what they've promised to do, whether or not they've promised to create policies that will be beneficial for renters. But I'd also be remiss not to talk about the good things that are happening in this community by both community members and those with more influence. So first of all, we have Arthur Blank, who's just built this hugely expensive stadium, who has promised to pour a lot of money into the West Side. So he is doing this um, through his foundation and through various partnerships and initiatives with nonprofits and organizations that are on the West Side. Whether or not it'll be effective in reducing displacement, I'm not sure. We also have the West Side Future Fund and West Side on the Rise, which are both doing similar things to show these neighborhoods some love and to help them grow into thriving places to live. There is one clarification that I would like to make about the West Side. We've heard, it's mostly been John Eves, but um, I know some other candidates have echoed this sentiment. And this has also come from Dan Cathy, too, who is the CEO or founder of Chick-fil-A. But um, I've heard people say that the West Side neighborhood looks like and feels like a war zone. I don't think of that as a dignifying way to characterize this neighborhood. In, in these neighborhoods. I think that the West Side, yes, has plenty of issues and certainly a lot of infrastructure issues. There are blighted houses, there, um, there are overgrown plots, and there are definitely cosmetic problems and deeper ones too and really systemic problems on the West Side. But to call it a war zone, I think does 
a lot of injustice to the fact that there is a thriving community there. There are plenty of people there who are not only doing their best, but also serving the community. And so I, I think calling this neighborhood a war zone really does injustice to the families and the people and you know, the single moms and the grandparents and the kids and the community members who really care about this community, love this community, have grown up here, um, and who who really make it the beautiful fabric that it is. But I will get down off of my soapbox so we can talk about what the candidates have to say about this side of the city. events this week is one of your last chances to see all of the mayoral candidates. So we have the mayoral forum put on by the Center for Civic Innovation and Creative Loafing. This will be held Monday, October 30th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. at Dad's Garage. You can find information about this event and other upcoming events at atlshowdown.com events. Last Saturday, there was a mayoral forum put on by the West Side Future Fund, and it was to address issues on the West Side. I, of course, live streamed it, and I'm here to give you the overview of what happened. So we start off with a question from Rose Scott about crime in these neighborhoods. So we get John Eves saying his spiel about merging the two jails and reinvesting the money back into the community, into work readiness programs, arts, sports, and etc. And he says, police are not the only solution to crime. And he talks about stopping the school-to-prison pipeline. We have Caesar who talks about improving the police and community relations by having them in the streets, having police and firefighters being mentors to kids in the community. Um, he also talks about having police living in the neighborhoods just as there are currently police who live in, I guess it's in, yeah, yeah, it's in the lines of Vine City right now. Um, Mary pretty much just talks more about community policing and brags about her endorsements from the police unions here. So I think it's really interesting. John Eves is kind of the only one who says, policing is not the only solution to our crime problem, which is what I, as a former neighbor and resident like to hear. So then next we have a question about displacement and sustainable development. So next, Rose Scott asks the question about displacement and development. So she asks, how do we avoid pushing people out of these neighborhoods yet sustain development and really improve these neighborhoods for our residents? And so Kathy Woolard says, we have been promising neighborhoods money, but it doesn't seem to get to the neighbors. 
So what happens is we create these programs and these initiatives, and we spend so much money investing in these programs that it never really trickles down and gets to the residents. And the truth is that residents are pretty disenfranchised by this. Um, I think talking to neighbors and residents in Vine City, they've said, yeah, we see this all the time. Promises are made to us, but we don't see the effect. It doesn't seem to often have much follow through. And so Kathy Willard says, this neighborhood is small. These neighborhoods in this area is small. There are about 15,000 people. And so her suggestion is, and her approach is, to take this on an individualized basis. So making sure that each individual renter, each homeowner, can afford to stay in their neighborhood, in their community, without getting displaced. And so she says that with just 15,000 people, we can handle this. Which is an interesting approach that I haven't really thought about before. Obviously, it's not scalable, and that's the point. And so I wonder, is that the most efficient use of money and time and resources? And maybe the answer is yes, if it avoids displacement. But this, I guess it's just something that I haven't really thought about much before. So then (laughs) Mary Norwood points out that there are only 8% homeowners in these neighborhoods. 92% are renters. But then she only gives solutions for the homeowners, which of course I think is crazy because as a former neighbor and former resident, I want to know how you're going to help these 92% of the people instead of the 8%. So she talks about um, some different like tax stuff to keep homeowners' property taxes from going up, which is great and important, but I really want to hear how you're going to help the renters. Um, Mary Norwood talks a lot about not displacing senior citizens. And then it's actually also Caesar who who picks up on that and he says, we will not allow senior citizens to be pushed out of their homes. But what's interesting is it's not just senior citizens who live in this neighborhood. Um, There are families, there are single moms, there are two-parent families, like young, old, you know, middle-aged, and nobody really seemed to talk about that, which I think is a huge issue because we want to say, oh, look, there are senior citizens, of course we want to help them, you know, they're living off retirement, they need our help, they're not going to do anything bad, but we don't want to give... (laughs) the single mom who is working three jobs, or the teenage boy who is who is involved in violence but still needs love and community and help. We don't want to talk about them and about helping those, those neighbors and those residents. So just an interesting fact that um, they all pretty much talked about senior citizens, but no, nobody else in this displacement topic. John Eves pretty much just bashes the city for what they haven't done. Uh, What's interesting is that he gets a huge applause after this. So again, our neighbors are pretty disenfranchised with what the city has done. Johnny, yeah, doesn't give any solutions, but he he does bash the city. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms says, we need affordable rent, which I totally agree with, but I have no idea how she's going to do that. Um, And she didn't really lay anything out for that. And then Peter Amon pretty much just says 
He was on the founding board of the Westside Future Fund. Um, he wants to create inclusionary housing, and he puts a price on that of four or five hundred dollars per month. So that's what the candidates have to say about affordable housing. My opinion here is that I wasn't impressed by any of them, and I think that there's some fear because affordable housing was promised to come along with the Beltline, and that didn't really happen on the east side. And so I really hope that the next mayor will make it happen on the west side. I was, I was also glad to hear that Peter Amon talked about four or $500 per month, and so I know that he was talking about rent. Um, it worries me that Mary Norwood and Cesar Mitchell kind of only talked about homeowners and really primarily senior citizens. And I think Kathy Willard has an interesting approach with the individualized basis and deciding how to help each neighbor on an individualized basis. I think that is, I hope that it could work if she's elected, but again, I, I'm not totally sure. So the next question was about youth in this community. And so I know that um, sometimes there is an issue with crime and with youth. And so I, I do think that there's definitely a lack of engagement for the youth and a lack of opportunity for the youth, not only in this community, but like systemically and as it gets bigger than just this community. But this is how the candidates answered. So Cesar Mitchell says, of course we need more initiatives in our, in our communities. And he kind of talks about his college prep series program and how, how that's helped. He does bring up the fact that a lot of times the crime in these neighborhoods is committed by young people. And he tells a story about um, how he was visiting his mom who lives in this community and um, some kids tried to take his car. Yeah, kind of. I think that it's interesting that he has this experience that it is with the youth. Next we have Mary Norwood. And so she says that, yes, there is sex trafficking in these neighborhoods, but she also calls it violence trafficking. And so she talks about how, how she sees it is the 22-year-old hands the gun to the 14-year-old, and so the 14-year-old thinks that this is an appropriate way to act and respond, and so that's how we get crime being passed down. And sure, I, I think that to some degree that's correct, or for, from my experience, I think that to some degree that's correct. But then Mary Norwood goes on to say that the way to fix this is through jobs for youth. And so she says that this is something that our previous mayor, Maynard Jackson, who, who also created programs um, for youth to have jobs. And so Mary Norwood then goes on to talk about a student or a child rate that you can pay, pay these children who, who are working jobs. And she says, she says, I'm talking about young kids too. She says, and also teenagers, but she calls them children. And so her solution for, for um, Rose's question about whether, whether these neighborhoods need more initiatives to help their youth is to give them jobs. And so these are children who are on the West Side. So these are children who already don't have access to and can't afford to go to summer camp. And they can't, you know, go to science camp and go to theater camp and have all of the experiences that the Buckhead kids get. And she says that the solution is to give them jobs. And so I was just appalled by this. I mean, 
sure, jobs for 16-year-olds, totally appropriate, absolutely. But for young children, absolutely not. Young children should be playing. They should be learning. They should be exploring. They should be engaging in their community. They should be learning about the world around them. There is no reason to give these young children jobs. And she talks about a child rate and she talks about earning things or money. So not even the dignity to you know have a wage, but you're trying to say that your solution is to give children, young children, a job. And so um, I, I, I am just totally appalled and angered really by this idea because I think it's, it's not dignifying to this, this community to think about a white woman saying that these youth of color should have jobs at a child rate just seems outlandish and crazy and and I, I really do think that this shows like being out of touch in this neighborhood. These kids don't need jobs, they need experiences, they need fun, they need to be taken out of their more stressful lives that they go home to to learn about science and art and theater and math and STEM and really to experience experience this world. So she very much had an answer to that question that I I very much disagreed with. So so next, Kathy Woolard was talking about making better infrastructure in this neighborhood and making kids feel like they live in a neighborhood where they matter, which I think is a good point. She does talk about summer a summer jobs program, which I can only hope that she means summer jobs for 16 and 17 maybe 15 year olds but she she does talk about how in a summer jobs program you do need places for your youth to work what i can think of right now in these west side neighborhoods is um the pool as a summer job opportunity so there's the natatorium and then there's a pool over um in i think it's in adair park i think it was adair park that is the the pool that that we used to run to so like having more infrastructure for jobs like what if there were teenagers who led a camp for the 10 year olds obviously with help from other people instead of giving 10 year olds jobs anyway um so so she talks a little bit about infrastructure peter amon talks about starting kids in early childhood and so he has been talking about this for a while on the campaign but birth to age three being um, early childhood. And he talks about mentoring and tutoring for kids in the community. And then we have John Eaves, who talks about sex trafficking. And something really important that I need to mention from his comment is that he says we need to go after the John and not the victim, which I think, again, is a really important statement. I think I've seen John Eaves make a lot of these statements that may seem a little bit more controversial, but to me, they seem pretty obvious, going after the John instead of the prostitute who, who is the victim. He talks about working with the school system and parents. One of the quotes that he said is that some parents don't have good parenting skills, which I thought was an interesting way to phrase that because I'm not sure that I would say these parents don't have good skills, but maybe they lack um, some of the resources, like not just time, but also education to parent the way that 
people with more money, time, and privilege can. That was interesting. So then the last question I think from the forum was about homelessness. Kwanzaa Hall, who we haven't talked about much yet, talks about using empty houses and apartments as temporary housing and homeless can work in day labor jobs, which is similar to what Mayor Norwood has brought up a few times about the mayor of Albuquerque who started this program where they would pick up panhandlers and um, give them jobs for the day. Mary Norwood says homelessness is four different categories. She says it's family, youth, veterans, and the chronic homeless. But Kathy Woolard said that homelessness is people who are on the edge. That Those are my words, not hers. And so she kind of talks about that as one check away from homelessness. You know, you um, have a flat tire and, um, you know, some medical bill. And then next thing you know, you can't afford your rent and then you're homeless. So people on the edge, number one, number two, youth. And then number three is um, those with mental illnesses. So that's two pretty different ways of looking at homelessness and categorizing them. I'm not sure that either one gave a really great way to deal with it. Peter Amon has talked a lot about homelessness also on the campaign trail. I think he is, he's in my eyes, seems to be the one with the most comprehensive plan as of right now. And so he talks about permanent supportive housing um, and other partnerships with other nonprofits and organizations to serve the homeless. Keisha Lance Bottoms says, she says, we need to address this issue with dignity, but she doesn't really say anything else. And so what I've heard from her a few times through this forum is seeming to say some of the right things and some of the things I want to hear about dignity and affordable rent, but not giving any any way to do that or really showing me how. So the buzzwords are right, but I, I don't know how she'll make that happen. And then John Eves just used this as an excuse to bash Kasim Reed. And so that about wraps it up. I don't think anything that the candidates said came as a huge surprise. I would say that the biggest issue right now facing the west side of Atlanta is affordable housing. And I think that this is pretty urgent with both the Beltline and the Mercedes-Benz Stadium up right now. So I'll leave you to decide how you think the candidates did. For me, there wasn't a clear front runner. There were some candidates who I think seemed to say the right things on some issues, but the wrong things on other issues, or seemed out of touch on some issues, but got it right on others. So it's it's unclear to me, as a person who cares about this community, that there is one clear front runner for this community, but I think that there are definitely some who, who are better qualified and more in touch and have these residents' interests more at heart than others. So there we have it. That is the west side of Atlanta. And I, I do think it's important that when you vote, you vote for all of Atlanta, not just your section of Atlanta. But of course, I don't have any say in what you choose as important for you and as a deciding factor for your vote. But I know that I will definitely be casting my vote with this neighborhood in mind, knowing that there are people in this neighborhood who also deserve dignity. All right, and so before we close out, I have one more update for you. So this is not about the west side of Atlanta. This is about our candidates. So on Tuesday, October 24th, 
Michael Sterling announced that he is dropping out of the race and he is endorsing Caesar Mitchell. So Michael Sterling said that he and his team thought that their message really resonated with voters, but they don't see a path to victory. He also said, I think that this is interesting, that outreach to younger voters using non-traditional means didn't work as well as his campaign thought it would, and that they didn't hit a lot of their fundraising goals. So interesting that outreach to younger voters didn't really work in this campaign, because I think that that's something that a lot of people have issues with, getting the younger voters um, to come out and actually vote and engage Um, So it'll be interesting. Again, we'll talk about breakdowns of statistics and who's voted in the 2009 campaign and um, a little bit more about that in another episode. But Michael Sterling is out. He's endorsed Cesar Mitchell, and we are down to just 10 candidates. So still a lot, um, but we are down by one. Michael Sterling... It was a pleasure. Thank you for your campaign. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of the ATL Showdown. We'll be back next week with an episode about scandals in the upcoming race. See you next time.